for me, the the biggest piece of uh, of the equation is that you know we want people to have have fun while they're here. I very very passionately believe that people learn better when they're having fun. They listen better. They they hear our conservation stories. They hear about what they can do to help uh, protect the environment. They uh, learn about the quality of the care we provide our animals. All all of those important messages they hear better when when they're having fun. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Josh, I am fantastic. How are you? Faded out there a little bit, but came back in. I was worried. <laughs> I think they call it Doppler effect. I think so, too. I think you've done that in the past as well. Have. <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Question for you. Yeah. You have done a lot of work with zoos and aquariums over the last 10, 12 years-ish or so, right? Yes. You've also visited many of them as a guest, haven't you? Correct. And one of the cool things of going to a zoo or an aquarium is being able to see the animals up close and be able to observe them in their in their habitat at the zoo or aquarium. <laughs> Do you think you have a perception from being there on the side of the guest of looking at the animals of knowing how happy they are? I don't know that I'm qualified to say they're happy. I can, I think I can tell when, and maybe I would call this happy, but I can tell when they're engaged, right? Okay. I can tell, I can tell when, and maybe this is the wrong way to say it, but I can tell when I think nothing's wrong. Okay. Maybe, right? Because yeah. like our guest today says, I can tell when my dog is happy, right? right? He's wagging his tail. I spend a lot of time with my dog, so I know wh what the signs are. I know how to read that. Um, I'll give you a quick example. At Georgia Aquarium, I spent probably an inordinate, uh, inordinate amount of time watching the beluga whales. Fair. And But they were fascinating. And they were swimming and they were playing and maybe playing is a, is a sign of happiness, right? If they're engaging with, with enrichment, if they're engaging with other animals, if they're engaging with the guests in, in some very safe way. Um, but I think when, when you can see them do their natural thing, to me, that's what might indicate an animal is happy or it's, it's satisfied or it's content. Um, again, I'm not a, I'm not an animal behaviorist, so it's, it's hard to say. Um, but I, but I think I can tell when nothing is wrong, if that makes sense. Okay. I appreciate the way you answered that question because I, particularly you said, I'm not qualified to say if they are, if they are happy or not, you said, I'm not an animal behaviorist, meaning that if you're not the majority of the guests who are visiting zoos and aquariums aren't either. They're out for a day out with their family, with their friends, whatever it is. And their perception of if the animal is happy is really all they have to go with. So like you said, I can tell when they're engaged, when they're playful, whatever it is. I, I think the fascinating thing about that is the way that that perception then translates into how the guest perceives the overall operation, the overall standard of animal care at the facility. And you can see that if you pull up TripAdvisor, if you pull up any review site, guests will share with you what they believe to be is objective fact that is based off of their perceptions. I remember many times I was doing, or uh, many years ago, I was doing some consulting work for a zoo. And I said, you've got a lot of negative reviews that say that the, the baboons are very unhealthy and they've got spots on them. They got bumps. And, and the head of the zoo said, that's how baboons are. That's that, that's just naturally part of them. They're not the most attractive creatures that, that there are aesthetically at least, uh, but it has nothing to do with their actual health. So 
there's this interesting challenge that zoos have, zoos and aquariums have, of communicating the healthiness and happiness of their animals to guests without overwhelming them with all of the knowledge that they do have from animal care, from veterinary medicine. And that ties in nicely with the conversation that uh, we have today with Dr. Mike Adkesson. He is the CEO of the Brookfield Zoo just outside of Chicago, Illinois, and he is a vet by trade. Uh, he spent many years working in veterinary medicine before about a year and a half taking on the CEO role at the Brookfield Zoo. And it's so interesting to hear from his lens as far as animal care and conservation and how guests perceive that as well and communicating that message in a way that resonates with someone who is not an animal behaviorist or is not qualified to tell this animal is happy and or healthy based on my observation. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting you you talked about the baboon or any animal, right, that we might see in another context. And for some reason, when you were saying that, I'm thinking cartoons, right? Mm -hmm. We see a lot of animals in cartoons, you know, maybe maybe me being the, the age I am, maybe I saw more, you know, when I was younger, whatever the case. Yeah, I watched Bugs Bunny when I was a there kid. There you go. There you go. So is that what you think a real bunny looks like? Bugs Bunny. Right. Or a roadrunner. I've seen a real roadrunner. Right. It doesn't look like the one in the cartoon. And so whatever our perception or our experiences before that, even if we know in my in, in our minds that, OK, I saw the baboon cartoon, but now I'm seeing a real one, but it looks different. So if my original perception of that baboon is that that cartoon is healthy, then what I'm seeing in that real baboon might not be right. So. It's, it's really interesting, like when you were saying that, like where our perceptions can come from, but that's also what Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Mike talks about, because so much of what we bring into the, the experience is part of the experience. And when you are experiencing the zoo from a, from a guest perspective and you're, you're seeing the animals and you're, you're learning about the animals, one of the things that he says is that it's so much easier to learn about the animals and their environment when you're having fun. So that's one of the things that he really focuses on. And he says, you know, nobody wants to come into the zoo and have a bad time. So let's not create a bad time. Let's create a good time, a fun time so that people can take away those educational nuggets with them. Yeah. And, and if they're having a bad time and you're trying to shove all this information in their face that they has to that they have to take with it, it's not going to resonate. So yeah. give them a great time, let them have fun. And then like you just said, based on what Mike, what Dr. Mike said is that uh, people learn best when they are having fun. Yeah. So uh, he also talks about the, the conservation efforts beyond the gates of the zoo as well, and that they uh, work with humble penguins and, and they have some of those at the zoo and you can interact with them and learn about, uh, learn about the, them as, as well as many endangered species. He talks about, you know, wolf pups and uh, uh, kind of a, a fun conversation about animals. And because it's fun, we learn a lot too. And we were happy during this conversation, right? You know, I saw a smile on your face. I know I had a smile on my face. Um, that's how we can tell as human beings we're happy. Uh, and Dr. Mike talks a lot about how the animals, based on their scientific data and process, they know the animals are healthy. They know they have a good mental state. They know that they're happy. And it's his contention that we should be talking more about that, how, how well cared for the animals are, uh, because that's the perception. If you see an animal doing something that you don't think they should be doing, like one of the big cats, you've heard this before, my favorite, the lions, the tigers, they lay around a lot, but that's what they do, right? So to say that, you know, th that the lion is not feeling well because he's taking some shade, that's what he would be doing out on the savanna in, in Africa. So that's not a, a good criteria for us to be judging whether or not that animal is healthy or happy. But Dr. Mike's team, they know. So should we have fun and learn a little bit with this conversation with Dr. Mike? Yes, we should. Hey, Dr. Mike, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are so excited to chat with you today. How are you? Doing great. Excited Excellent. to be here. Fantastic. So uh, to get this kicked off, can you tell us a, a little bit about your background and tell us about your career? 
Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a veterinarian by background and training. Um, went on to specialize in zoo and wildlife medicine and uh, worked here at Brookfield Zoo for 15 years uh, in a clinical veterinarian role and later on as a, a leadership position over our animal health care, uh, veterinary services department, and uh, overseeing all of the animal health operations here at the zoo. Moved into uh, this current position as president and CEO about 18 months ago. So uh, really settled into this new position and very excited about the uh, future directions here at the zoo. Well, we definitely want to uh, dive into all of that, but I'm curious too, what originally got you into uh, veterinary medicine? So I, I actually got into zoos before I got into veterinary okay. medicine. So my uh, my mom signed me up for a uh, youth volunteer program uh, at the local zoo in my hometown. I'm from Decatur, Illinois. Um, so a small zoo called Scoville Zoo. Uh, summer volunteer program for kids uh, started in that about eight years of age. Not completely sure if my mom signed me up for it because I expressed interest or she was just trying to get me out of the house a couple afternoons a week. But Either way, it uh, it stuck and uh, ended up uh, continuing to volunteer through that program until I aged out of it, got my first job as a part-time zookeeper at 15, and uh, really kind of never looked back. So veterinary medicine was really the path to uh, stay in, in a zoo-focused career, and um, uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history on that front. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about kind of the the shift or the transition from veterinary medicine to executive leadership? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's kind of back to that that piece of you know I wanted to to work at a zoo before I wanted to be a veterinarian. I've always loved um, everything about zoos, so to me, um, I have always been excited about uh, everything that zoos represent, from uh, conservation, education, research, training. Um, and then the just the fun and the guest oriented components to the uh, just creation of a wonderful family experience on a you know Saturday afternoon. So the the whole package has always been something that I've always been excited about. Um, loved being a veterinarian, still love being a veterinarian. I shouldn't say it in a past tense, I guess, but. Um, you know, I, I loved everything about my job as a clinical veterinarian, um, but definitely also really enjoyed the leadership aspects of my job. So I ended up uh, going back and doing an MBA a few years ago um, with an eye towards uh, future leadership opportunity and really became incredibly fortunate that the timing and the stars kind of aligned in terms of my predecessor retiring and the opportunity becoming available to step into a leadership position here at a zoo that I've been part of for a long time and uh, holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah, to have um, kind of had that previous zoo and, and early zoo experience, I'm curious, what are, you, what are you taking away now from that early experience that you can say, this is still part of who, who I am and my DNA, and I'm, I'm using this to kind of catapult my leadership, knowing that that happened many years ago? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is just always remembering um, for me how much I loved being there as a kid and, you know, everything about uh, that experience, I think, informs some of the decision making I, I make today. And, you know, that's the the combination of finding the right balance between the zoo being a, a fun destination and someplace that you go to enjoy with friends and family uh, but making sure that we're always doing that in a way that is mindful of what's in the best interest of our animals, uh, making sure that we're providing them the absolute best care possible, uh, maintaining their, their well-being and their uh, physical and medical health, um, as well as making sure that there's a, a mission kind of baked into all of that, that, you know, there's a reason for the animals to be here. And sometimes that is because they're part of a conservation program that is aiming to get animals back into the wild. Sometimes it's because they're part of a conservation program telling a story about, uh, you know, the challenges that wildlife face around the world. And and sometimes they're here just to to help make that connection of uh, between people and animals, you know, in a very urbanized environment. Uh, there are a lot of kids that grow up without 
setting foot on a farm and, you know, we may be the only place they come into contact with a goat. And there's something, you know, important in that just in itself, that it's an opportunity for kids to really develop a sense of empathy for animals and to really be able to to connect with them and, and understand the importance of, of animals in our society. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you took on the CEO role about 18 months ago, and uh, that would bring us to around October of 2021. Yeah. And we all know what was going on in the world <laughs> at, at that point and had been for over a year and a half at, at that yeah. point as well. I would love to know what that was like for you because it, you know, it's such a, a challenging time uh, for, you know, for, for everybody. And then, you know, in, in the state of, of Illinois was more locked down, I'd say more, more procedures, uh, you know, than, than perhaps some other states. So it, as far as kind of moving into the, the CEO role uh, during that time, would love to know yeah. what that was like and any challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it was, it was, it was a tough time and in some ways continues to be a tough time. Um, by and large, the zoo did okay during COVID, you know, as an outside destination, um, even in the, the tougher parts of a social lockdown uh, situation, we were still able to provide a uh, decreased capacity uh, visit uh, rate for um, our operations and uh, you know, people were able to stay socially distanced um, while here on grounds outside. We kept a lot of the buildings closed, but, you know, we still had a good number of people coming through our gates. Um, now, we had to make some really tough decisions to scale back programs, reduce staffing, um, undertake a number of cuts to just, you know, maintain financial viability. I kind of came into the leadership position right in the middle of that. So, you know, my challenge was as much finding a way back out of it um, as it was continuing to operate in that environment. Um, but that was really tough and, and it continues to be tough because, you know, the visitation rates are, are not what they used to be. People are still uh, in many cases sort of carrying along some behavioral remnants of the pandemic. We've got, uh, you know, within our society, I think we've got a backlog of people that, you know, had weddings canceled or vacations postponed. And so, you know, there's a lot of other things people are trying to do right now that uh, is making it difficult for us to really kind of predict what some of those visitation rates, you know, look like on a move forward basis. Um, so that that was that was one challenge. You know, another challenge is it's really tough to get to know teams when uh, you know you can't sit down together. And so, you know, what I kind of jokingly kept referring to as a you know this would normally be a, a sit down with a work group over some coffee and donuts in the morning and just you know let them hear a little bit about my leadership style and my you know future vision for the zoo and listen to their concerns and listen to their challenges. You know, we ended up doing that on Zoom or we ended up doing that uh, sitting around a table with no coffee and donuts, you know. So there was that challenge of just uh, becoming familiar with uh, aspects of the operation that, you know, were not uh, uh, quite as close to me um, in previous years. Um, and then the, the other kind of dynamic on all of it is, you know, as a zoo with animals, we also not only had um, staff safety considerations, we had animal safety considerations. And, um, you know, it's an aspect of the pandemic that didn't get a lot of uh, attention because by and large, our domestic animals were not susceptible to the coronavirus, but uh, a number of other uh, species of mammals were. So, you know, at one point during the pandemic, we had uh, a series of cases uh, come to light in some of our larger cats and some of our small mammals with some animals that were uh, really sick from it um, and actively shedding virus, which creates, uh, you know, a situation where we have staff that are still needing to care for those animals. So just a lot of complexity in, in that aspect that added challenge to kind of how we we operated throughout that period of time. You know, Dr. Mike, you mentioned some of those tough choices and obviously the financial feasibility. And I, I think about comparing a zoo to, for example, uh, an amusement park where, you know, the rides don't need the upkeep when the park isn't open, right? But animals do and animals yeah. are expensive. So I'm yes. curious if we can dive a little deeper into that thought process and kind of what those conversations were like when you really had to 
I mean, a, a very delicate balance, right? To to keep yeah. the the high level of care for the animals, but also the the feasibility for the organization. Yeah, that that was definitely the challenge. Is that you know even when we're closed, um, you know, very different than an amusement park. That when it closes, the rides are closed, and you know, there's some maintenance cost maybe, but by and large, they don't cost a whole lot to to sit empty. Whereas uh, for us, you know, during the period of time that we were completely closed and then during the periods where we were on a, a reduced visitation level, um, our animal care operation really doesn't change at all. Um, so, you know, the cost of that uh, daily care, the cost of feeding the animals, um, you know, it's a significant operational cost for us. And, um you know, we were fortunate in that we've got a wonderful uh, a philanthropic base that supports the zoo, believes in our mission, and uh, understood that dynamic that, you know, our costs largely didn't change because we were closed and the animals still needed care. So uh, we, you know, put together an above and beyond campaign very quickly um, to go after the funding to provide that ongoing care for our animals while our gates were closed. So, um, you know, that that helped a lot. Uh, we still had to make some tough choices as far as um, scaling back on education and community programming, pausing uh, activities around conservation, pausing uh, activities around uh, animal welfare research and some of our other programs that we're very committed to and we're very passionate about because they helped advance our mission. But uh, in that sort of operational environment, the funding was just not there. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to switch gears just a, just a little bit here. Uh, in the Brookfield Zoo, it's you know widely known as being you know one of the leading zoos in the country, and even just in in Chicago, one of the top attractions. And uh, you know you talked it about you know being passionate about about the zoo experience, and uh, you, you mentioned fun a couple of times and the family's day out on on the Saturday, and uh, blending that with the passion for the animals and and the conservation and would love to hear really I would say the the intersection of those and uh, you know de delivering an experience that you know really balances that education but also that yeah. superior visitor experience as well for me the the biggest piece of uh, of the equation is that you know we want people to have have fun while they're here I very very passionately believe that people learn better when they're having fun they listen better they they hear our conservation stories they hear about what they can do to help uh, protect the environment they uh, learn about the quality of the care we provide our animals, all, all of those important messages they hear better when when they're having fun. So, you know, nobody wants to go out, have a crummy day with the family, and then also be, you know, uh, have a message shoved in front of you. Um, so to, to me, that's what I always come back to with our teams is, you know, this is all about the, the experience that our guests have from the moment they arrive at the zoo until, you know, after they leave. And, we always want to stay focused on making that experience as positive as possible. So, um, you know, that that takes on a lot of different forms in, in everything from, you know, the uh, quality of the food they're, they're grabbing at a snack stand while they're here to the uh, additional attractions that we offer. Um, but most importantly, it's the it's the animal experience. And so, you know, making sure that in the context of providing the best care we can for our animals, how are we also uh, making sure that our animals are, are visible to to our guests so that they're able to see them, they're able to get that special up close, you know, look uh, into a habitat they're able to uh, potentially interact with an animal care staff member while they're here and learn about the, you know, what it takes to care for the animals, learn the animals' names, learn a fun fact about them. You know, that type of just personalized experience is, is, is a huge part of what we do. And we also have the luxury that, you know, every experience here can be different. You know, it's not the same ride every time you come. It's a, it's a different experience every time. And you may see an animal doing something very different, you know, on, on one visit that, uh, can be that engaging experience. You know, if we've got a newly born animal or we've got a pair of animals that are, you know, just meeting one another, or we've got a young animal that's just come in that's active and, you know, excited in a different way. So, you know, really making sure that we're trying to, to provide that 
sort of variable experience in a, in a very effective way that keeps people engaged and keeps them wanting to come back. And I love the way that you talk about how people will learn and be more engaged when they are having fun. Um, so I'm curious from a, from a leadership perspective, how do you translate that also to the teams there at Brookfield Zoo, right? Because they're delivering this information. They're the ones caring yeah. for these. Talk to me a, a little bit about the, the environment that's created for the team as well. Sure. Um, you know, for our, for our animal care staff, they, they're the frontline people that take care of the animals. And, you know, we kind of always, uh, you know, joke a little bit that they've always got the best stories. You know, they, they've got the best stories to tell because they're the ones that work there with the animals, but they're not the only ones that can tell those stories. And I think that's what's so neat about it is, you know, those um, we want them to share those stories, but then, you know, any of our staff is able to pick up those stories. And, you know, did you know that, you know, Joe, the giraffe loves apples or, you know, whatever the, the little tidbit may be. Um, it, it's just as exciting to our guests, you know, when they hear it from, from anybody along the way, it's kind of that personalized, um, experience, so to speak, as they move through the zoo. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a big, team you know that's the atmosphere that we we try and uh are, are trying to build is that all of our staff is on one team and we're all on that team together and we all want to create a fantastic guest experience and we want our animals to be happy and uh well cared for and um you know that's the core of our mission so are there any stories that you love to share that exemplify whether it's that that Great way that the employees are sharing the stories, the guest experience, great facts about the animals that uh, that helps to, I would say, rev up the, you know, the, the excitement and also tie back to the mission as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I often uh, I often try and look at the zoo through my my kids eyes. So I've got a, a 12 year old, a 10 year old and a seven month old uh, daughter. But those older two, obviously, you know, have kind of grown up at the zoo, so to speak, with me. So, you know, they are. Um, very um very familiar with so many aspects of our operations and uh often you know can talk to me about our animals using the animal's first name and you know and and so it's kind of those same stories back to me but they also get so excited about um other aspects of the operation you know i would joke that you know i end up here with my kids and they're more excited about you know the slushy or they're more excited about you know a golf cart ride from you know my office across the zoo or something and so you know they're they're a little bit skewed in in what they think is normal because they've been around the animals all along but um you know, the the stories that I can share with them um, are the same types of stories that I try and share with other people, I guess. And, you know, those are often just little tidbits about, you know, what an animal likes to, to eat or, you know, what an animal's, uh, you know, what I saw them doing the other day, you know, they were playing around with a item of enrichment or playing around with a toy or, you know, did something silly. And so th those are just those little moment by moment uh, tidbits, I think, that resonate so uh, well with our guests. Um, a lot of my, you know, more entertaining stories are probably from the medical side where, you know, um, as a veterinarian, like I would, you know, have the the opportunity to interact with a lot of animals in a very different way. And, you know, a lot of those are um, animals that, um, you know, we become very close to because we spend a lot of time caring for them in a very close way. And so um, some of those experiences are fantastic. We've got a, a sloth in our uh, ambassador programs, so our animal ambassador program that gets animals out into the park and allows people to to see them up close and talk with an animal care staff member about them. So uh, we've got an ambassador animal named Timo um, that's a two-toed sloth. And, you know, Timo actually uh, spent some time um, when he was young in the hospital as we were, you know, trying to get him uh, just stabilized, had a little bit of a struggle early in life and um, just needed some tender loving care. And so that's an animal that, you know, I spent a lot of time up close with and, you know, he's a fantastic animal. He loves to eat green beans, you know, and just those kind of little like, you know, tidbits are, I think, sometimes the best stories we can tell. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the the guest experience um, just for a minute as as someone who goes to a zoo, because I think when I go to a zoo, my mindset is to try to absorb as much as possible. Right. And I want to I want to take it all in. And I want to when I leave, have all this information, all this knowledge in my head. But I also know that's probably not realistic. Right. <laughs> because I'm there to also have fun. I'm there, I want to stare at the big cats for a long time. Um, but I want to, you know, absorb all that. But I know even if I like now that I've been to many zoos over the years, if I just walk out with a couple of tidbits and then that accumulates over time, that's fine, right? So yeah. is that yeah. sort of how that process is designed, like for people to come back and, and get those different experiences every time yeah. so that then it kind of builds on itself? Yeah, that's certainly what, what I hope people do. You know, it, like you said, it, it's a it's too much information to take it all in at once. And um you know, our hope is that we engage people, they they become repeat visitors, they become members, um, they become supporters, and that we're able to just continually bring them along with us on the journey of, of what we do. And um, that can be well beyond the actual visit. Um, that can be engagement on our social media channels, that can be uh, browsing our website and looking at, you know, some of the information that's on there as far as our conservation programs. We offer evening lectures. We offer lunchtime seminars that, you know, dive deep into particular topics that we don't have the the luxury of being able to share in that detail with our guests while they're here. But um, we strive to make that information available in other ways so that people do get to see that other side of what we do. We've got incredible conservation programs that work around the world, um, protecting wildlife and uh, wild places. And, you know, those programs are instrumental in, in conservation success um, for many species. And we partner with zoos and other conservation organizations around the world. So when you think about the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and it's, uh, you know, over 250 member facilities, um, you know, over the last five years, uh, those zoos and aquariums have put $1 billion towards conservation programs uh, aimed at protecting many of our world's most endangered species and, and threatened habitats. So, you know, there's a depth to what we do there that is is hard to convey in one visit, um, but we hope that we can bring people along with us as we, you know, develop those programs and share those stories. Mm. So I'm curious, actually, my, my question is about, you know, how you are able to share those stories of the work that the zoo does beyond the gates of the zoo. Because the guest comes and guest experience, they, they want to have fun. They want to, you know, they want to spend time with their family. They want to learn a little bit. But part of it is also sharing with them, hey, that the dollar that you're spending to get in here is not confined to just what we're doing at the zoo. Obviously, a lot of it, yeah. a lot of it has to be, and there's so much that yeah. goes on the site. Yeah. But being able to really stress to the guest of, this is what's happening here. And it's so important because of all these things happening, all these other places and all, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of it comes through, you know, just the opportunities like this to, to share our story and share a, a deeper look into what we do. Um, so we definitely try and, and take advantage of that. We also, I think we're able to, to use our animals in a way that, you know, connects a, a person into a story, um, about a particular species. And so they care more about a particular species because they've seen a specific animal up close while they're here at the zoo. So, um, you know, our Mexican gray wolves are a great example of that, where uh, we're partnered with other zoos around the country, as well as the United States Fish and Wildlife Service on reintroduction programs uh, for Mexican gray wolves in the Southwest United States. and. It's a very uh, successful conservation program that's trying to bring back uh, that population from uh, the edge of extinction. And uh, we have wolf pups that are born here at the zoo. And on multiple occasions, those pups have actually been reintroduced back into the wild in a den site with a wild mom. So, you know, if you do it at the right age and um, know what you're doing, you're able to actually get animals uh, introduced back into the wild at a very young age, and then that mother wolf raises them in the wild, and they're part of a pack, and you've now 
added to the success of that that conservation program. So, you know, we're hopefully able to take a, a story of wolf pups being born here at the zoo um, and then, you know, sort of captivate an audience on our animals here and then, you know, share that story with them about all the work going on in the wild to uh, try and recover this, this population of wolves. And can you talk a little bit about why that's so important? Why, why the conservation efforts are so important? I think we probably get it from a big picture standpoint, yeah. but you know, when you're talking about, you know, getting that wolf pup into the, into the pack and all the other things that you're doing, it's not just about the wolves, but thinking about all the different species that you're working with and other zoos are working with, why is, why is getting those animals back out into the wild and, and fulfilling those populations so, so important? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're, we're living in the midst of, uh, you know, one of the greatest extinction events on our planet right now and are losing animals um, at an alarming rate right now. Um, and it's, you know, entirely human driven right now is the, the reality of the situation is that, you know, we are living in a day and age where, where as a species, uh, we have dominated the planet in a way that no other species ever has. And um, without that intervention, uh, we're going to continue to see loss of species, loss of biodiversity, loss of habitat. And so it's incredibly important for us to be a voice um, in helping people to see that. I think that it's it's hard to sort of abstractly process what that means when we talk about extinction rates and we talk about loss of biodiversity. It's those are big problems. Those are big picture issues that are hard for people to kind of connect to. And, you know, they may uh, on some level recycle because they know it's the good thing to do for the planet or they'll turn off light switches to conserve energy because they know it's the right thing to do for the planet. But it, it's hard to kind of connect those two pieces together without somebody really being able to kind of steward you through that process and share that story. So you know, we um, we work with a Humboldt Penguin Conservation Program in Peru. And so we have Humboldt Penguins at the zoo. We have a penguin encounter that lets people get a chance to come meet some of our penguins, but uh, in, a, in a smaller group setting. So, you know, 20 people in a room with an animal care staff member and a couple penguins. Uh, it's a hugely popular program. Penguins are very uh, inquisitive and kind of naturally curious birds. So it's a really great opportunity for people to visit an animal and, and really connect with that animal on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And then we tell that story about conservation of penguins in Peru. And it's now, uh, it's a very uh, different level of connection of I'm going to recycle this or I'm going to make sure this waste gets to the right place because I don't want this piece of plastic to eventually end up in the wild where you know, a penguin is going to get hold of it and it's, you know, potentially going to impact the the life of that bird because I have met Pepe the penguin at Brookfield Zoo and I and I adore Pepe the penguin. And so, you know, being able to to make those connections in that uh, very close way, I think helps people to have an anchor for that of, okay, I understand the importance of ocean conservation because I know that if if we don't do our part to to make sure our oceans stay healthy, there's not going to be any humble penguins left in the wild. I, I think this kind of transitions nicely into a, another question we wanted to ask you about. And that was just, you know, just over the last decade, well, or, or last many years, but particularly, I would say, accelerated in, in the last decade, the public perception of animals and professional care just mm -hmm. continues to change and uh, curious about responding to that, uh, and, and not just at the organizational level, but would love to hear as far as from from you personally, just with with your background, particularly in veterinary medicine, of, of just uh, your response to the shifting perception, public perception of of animals in zoos and aquariums. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a, it's a complex conversation for, for sure, and it and it's a very important one, and it's one that I always try and. Uh, engage any chance that I can. Um, there is a, a story there that I think zoos and aquariums have not told well um, over the last uh, few decades. Um, we have a history as a, you know, zoos and aquariums have a history, you know, all the way back to our founding of taking animals out of the wild for 
largely, uh, you know, human purposes in terms of entertainment. And um, when one died, we would go get another one. And I think that that is a, a history that we have to own. Uh, it is certainly not something I think that any zoo would be proud of today. Um, and it's something that I think uh, has dramatically changed over the last 30 years and has not been shared effectively with the public. Uh, the reality is uh, nearly all animals in zoos today are, are born in zoos or are part of a conservation program. Um, the, the emphasis that we place on the health and well-being of our individual animals is uh, mission critical and, and the core of what we do as a, as a segment right now in terms of zoos and aquariums. Uh, we are hugely focused on animal care and animal welfare. And the reality of the situation is that, you know, from a medical and, and health standpoint, our animals receive uh, better care than than most pets, and they receive better care than really billions of people around the globe receive. You know, our, our animal hospital here at the zoo is um, an incredibly uh, advanced hospital when you compare it to the level of medical care that many people on this planet live with. So, you know, it is a, a core part of what we do today is making sure that our animals are healthy, uh, both mentally and physically. Um, we go to great lengths to make sure that we're providing them enriching and stimulating environments um, where they're where they're happy. And, you know, as uh, as a zoo, we uh, I think we shy away from that word a little too much. We're, we're hesitant to say our animals are happy. And instead, we tell a story with the science and the data behind it, um, which the data is there to support that. But I think people need to hear from us more that yes, our animals are happy. It, it is okay to be uh, at a zoo. It is okay to uh, be comfortable that our animals are well cared for because they are. They're happy, they're healthy, um, and they're thriving. And they play an integral part in, in education and conservation and uh, programs globally right now. We get a lot of uh, challenge from animal rights organizations. Um, and I think the point that is often lost in that conversation is that uh, for many of these animal rights organizations, their goal is to, you know, not have animals under human care. And whether that's in a zoo or whether that's uh, in a livestock setting or whether that's a pet in your household, uh, there, there's a fundamental focus by many of these organizations that they just don't feel that's, you know, animals should be at the quote unquote service of humans. Um, but the other point that's lost in that is those organizations are by and large not supporting uh, conservation of, of wildlife. And, you know, and that that's sort of where that uh, chasm becomes really kind of clear to me is that, you know, if, if we're not doing it, there, there's nobody doing it in terms of uh, being able to make those connections to wildlife and, and help people see these animals in a, in a way that inspires them to care and makes a connection for them to want to help these animals in the wild. Mike, I'm curious, as you talk about actually sharing that, hey, our animals are happy, right? Is part of the reluctance to even use that type of word that if they're not happy, then they must be sad. And if they're sad, they're not being well taken care of. So you don't want to go down that road. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it's, it's easy to, it, it's a, it's a difficult conversation because it's easy to point and say that animal is unhappy. Um, and then, you know, it, it puts you in a position of having to try and argue back that the animal is happy. And, and the way that you sort of prove that the animal is happy is through different metrics and measures of, of animal welfare, looking at behavioral patterns, looking at health parameters, and, and we can do all of that for most of the species in our care is we have very well-established indicators of health. We have very good tools for monitoring welfare. Um, we can look at behavioral diversity and, and what an animal is doing. We can look at, you know, longevity data that these animals are surviving, you know, better and longer under human care than they are in the wild. But the way in which we make all of those arguments is from an objective, scientific, data-driven point. And so that's the information that we try and share back. Um, but it often just kind of gets lost in the messages. You know, somebody points and says that animal's unhappy, and then we respond with a 
very objective, scientifically driven statement, and you know, and, and it kind of gets lost in in translation. Where I think for a lot of people, they just want us to say, "Nope, they're happy," and and they're they're willing to kind of go along with us on that, that. That you know, we have the experts, we have the animal care staff, we have the researchers, we have the uh, welfare specialists that can say, "Yep, they're happy." Um, and I think that that's just a message we need to be a little more comfortable saying, um, you know, I know my dog is happy when I come home at the end of the day and I walk in my house, like my dog is happy. It's wagging its tail and, and it's very eager to see me. And um, I don't necessarily need to just scientifically prove that. Like we can interpret it because we know that animal so well. And it's in most cases, that same sort of connection that our, animal care staff and our animals have, you know, they have incredible bonds. Um, when we talk about something like, uh, when we talk about dolphins under human care, you know, dolphins are, are an animal that uh, definitely attract that sort of conversation of, you know, are they thriving under human care? And, you know, I can go over there and I can look at uh, one of our dolphins interacting and engaging with one of our animal care staff and and it's the same type of bond that you see people have with their their pet dog or their pet cat and you know the, those animals are um in an incredibly good good state of care and um and then they enjoy you know spending time with the people that provide that care for them and so you know those relationships are phenomenal and i think in many cases when people see that up close and firsthand they don't have those lingering questions anymore. And it's, um, I think, something that as a profession, we need to do a better job of helping people to kind of see that behind the scenes of view of our animals and understand the the level of, of compassion and care that our uh, animal care staff has for the animals that they work with every day. Mm. It is such a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could, uh, I, I feel like there's, there could be so much to unpack. We could yes. do a whole, whole nother probably series of podcasts yeah. just, just on that topic. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, we'd love to learn a little bit about the zoo's master plan for the centennial anniversary, which is still 11 years away. We'd love to know as far as kind of what, yeah. the, what the process for that is, is like of, of looking out towards 2034. Yeah, absolutely. So that that 11 years sounds like a long time until you really start uh, looking at how that breaks down into major capital projects and timelines. So um, right now we are uh, in the process of developing that master plan vision that will lead us past that centennial celebration of the zoo opening. So, um, you know, we are really looking at this to be a, a master plan that will set the vision for the next 100 years, um, a series of major capital investments in the zoo to uh, provide new experiences for our guests, to enhance and expand our animal habitats and the buildings that serve those uh, different experiences, and really just to continue to improve that uh, guest experience as well. So that, you know, when we talk about people coming here and having fun, we're providing new and exciting uh, reasons for them to come as we continue to try and build um, our visitation even higher than what it is now. We have a lead off project already identified and, and underway. So we're working towards new outdoor habitats for our gorillas, our orangutans, and a number of our different monkey species. So this will be a two acre uh, uh, animal habitat um, that will attach onto our current tropic world uh, facility, which is our indoor rainforest experience for all of our primates. And it will really um, provide a uh, incredible enhancement in, in the spaces that those animals have um, to, to live in and interact uh, with just in terms of the environment that they're in. So we're tremendously excited about it. Um, Tropic World was really sort of state-of-the-art and revolutionary when it opened. Um, but that was 40 years ago. And, you know, a lot of uh, things have changed in 40 years. And, you know, we really today are, are very focused on providing an uh, enhanced environment to those animals. We want to get them outside. We want them to um, be able to experience a more naturalistic environment. And so we think it's going to be a very uh, compelling uh, project to sort of lead off this new master plan and 
uh, we'll sort of be layering in a couple of additional major capital campaigns, uh, you know, to follow this one to get us up to that 2034 timeline. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mike, you have given us uh, such a great insight into your career and, and certainly the Brookfield Zoo. I'm curious if there were people that were thinking about, you know, wanting to get into uh, executive leadership for a zoo or an aquarium or any place that maybe has an animal collection, what would your advice be? It's a great question. Um, you know, there, there's no one path, I think, is the, the best statement I can make to that is when you look at leadership throughout zoos at, at the CEO level or at the senior vice president levels, you'll find that there is no shortage of different backgrounds uh, that people have come from. And I, I think that really uh, is a tremendous asset to our profession as a whole is that, you know, there are a lot of different ways to get here and all of the different uh, leaders bring a different background that I think makes our collective voice even stronger. Um, you know, in, in that vein, I think that, you know, anybody looking for that leadership pathway can really come at it from a lot of different ways. Um, you know, we look for the same skill sets in our um, marketing staff, our HR staff, our IT staff that, you know, any other industry segment would would look at. So, you know, I would encourage somebody that is, you know, maybe not from an animal background to consider, you know, giving a zoo a try um, in terms of, you know, career opportunities for those coming up through the animal ranks. Um, I think just really uh, taking the time to become familiar with the other uh, aspects of the, the operation of a major zoological park is, uh, you know, key to that. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate that uh, I have such a strong animal background uh, but it's also the the leadership investment that I've undertaken and in, in the MBA and some of the other skill sets that have really helped me to get where I am today. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Mike, this has been such a fascinating conversation. As we start to wind this down here, if people wanted to learn more about Brookfield Zoo or if they wanted to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? So our, our website is uh, probably the best place for information, um, brookfieldzoo.org or uh, CZS, Chicago Zoological Society.org. Um, wealth of information on our website, lots of links to other resources and additional sources of information and uh, uh, contact information there as well. Excellent. Well, like Josh said, this has been a great conversation, uh, Dr. Mike. Thank you so much for your time. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.